Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Regular listeners know that this is the place where we take a deep dive into the economics of sports, particularly as economic issues impact the stadiums that we visit to enjoy games and other events. Player salaries, billion-dollar stadiums, growing broadcast rights fees, naming rights, that's driving the conversation. And today, we're going to explore the landscape with Drexel University sports management professor Joel Maxey, who looks at the changing shelf life for stadiums and what's ahead for collective bargaining between players and management. And Mark Madoran of Stadiums USA reports on a not-so-subtle warning to Buffalo on the need to build a new dome stadium. And this warning comes right from the top. But first, let's cover the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, the bright yellow goalposts are now in place at U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. This marks another milestone bringing the Vikings' new home closer to completion. Crews previously completed installation of the field turf, including the purple Vikings end zone letters and the Norseman midfield logo. The Vikes are scheduled to host the Chargers in a preseason contest on August 28th. More talk of need for a new Buffalo Bills stadium. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell was in western New York recently and fielded a number of questions pertaining to the Bills and their viability at their current home, Ralph Wilson Stadium. Goodell issued the company line saying the team needs to do what's best for the franchise and the fans of Buffalo, i.e. eventually get a new stadium. Noted sports economist Andrew Zimblis talked with WGRZ about the Bills' dilemma. Goodell is simply playing the cards that he has in, in his hand, and they're pretty powerful cards. I mean, he's got four aces. Depending on what the project is, depending on what the city's needs are, depending on how it's financed, depending on public subsidies, maybe, maybe it could work out. Two years ago, Ralph Wilson Stadium underwent $130 million in renovations. The team's current lease at the Ralph runs through 2022. Well, you can count The Ohio State University among the growing list of schools allowing stadium-wide alcohol sales. The sale of alcohol began last year in Columbus in a pilot program for patrons with tickets in the suite and club levels. The new policy begins next week when Ohio Stadium hosts the Country Music Superfest. Old Dominion University officials have unveiled plans to build a new $55 million football stadium on their Norfolk, Virginia campus. It'll be an intimate venue with plans calling for slightly more than 22,000 capacity, although some alumni are calling for something closer to 25 to 30,000, with visiting schools Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Wake Forest slated to play at the new venue. If the plan comes to fruition, the team could be playing at the new stadium by 2019. Well, the latest voice calling for an end to public subsidies of stadiums comes from a rather strange source, Seattle Seahawks cornerback Richard Sherman. 
Sherman told ESPN this week if he were elected president, he would tackle the nation's deficit by making billionaire owners fund their own stadium projects. So far, no comment from Seahawks owner Paul Allen. And the NCAA is out with its men's college basketball attendance numbers. The Big Ten Conference drew the highest number of fans last season, with 11 of the 14 schools averaging more than 10,000 per game. Maryland had the largest average increase at more than 5,100 per game. The University of Kentucky, playing at spacious Rupp Arena, drew an average of more than 23,000 fans per game dethroning previous attendance champion Syracuse. Bill, that is the very latest. Thanks, Jeff. Each week in this program, we talk about these fascinating times in terms of stadiums and the money that drives it all. We're going to dig into some of that today. We'd like to invite on with us Dr. Joel Maxey. He is an associate professor and the head of the Drexel University Sports Management Department. Joel's expertise includes antitrust law, collective bargaining in professional sports leagues did a lot of work on that and stadium finance as well joel we welcome you to the program and i'd like to start by asking you about the questions that a person in your end of the business uh, looks to try to answer what would you like to find and share with others uh, as you overview the playing field all right, thanks, Bill. I think uh, just what, when when you kind of gave a little summary of what I've done in the past, there's to me two major themes in sports economics, uh, and one of them is the labor issues, and I think that's the one that started driving things originally. Because uh, if you recall back in the '60s and into the '70s, players couldn't be free agents, and you had uh, players' unions forming up, and Marvin Miller taking the baseball players, and Kurt Flood taking his case to the Supreme Court. And so forth. So there was a lot of interest, uh, you know, what would happen if players could, uh, uh, could be free agents and what would happen to their pay? And if their pay went way up, what would happen to competitive balance and all those things? And so I was, uh, uh, definitely a kid when these things started to happen. But when I got into economics of sports, these things were still really, really interesting to me. And then the second one, um, and this is, I think, a function of stuff that went on in the 90s is, is you asked me about stadium finance. And that probably, I'm, I'm going to say that things like that get more attention now because since you're in Chicago, that it was probably the new Comiskey Park, uh, although that one wasn't really built in such uh, a style, but, but then Camden Yards. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, sports stadiums have just about turned over just about every uh baseball club uh major league baseball club has a new stadium uh Wrigley and and Fenway are exceptions so so since 1990 or 1991 they've almost completely turned over and and of course the other thing is a lot of these stadiums are built with public money taxpayer money so so the question is what is it that communities get back out of it they're promised all kinds of economic impact and jobs and tax so much tax revenue that they pay for themselves and i think most of us uh economists that study these things say that doesn't really happen it's not that these things don't have 
benefits, but a lot of those benefits go back to the team owners more than the public. And there might may, may be good things about, you know, the, the feel good things about sports and all of that. But, uh, but that's definitely a secondary and then, then derived from that. Or what about, uh, what about the economic impact of big events like Olympics and Super Bowls and World Cups and those sorts of things? I would say that we've seen the evolution of the business model for building stadiums. And for me, the big change started with the palace in Auburn Hills, which, as you know, designed a lot of skyboxes integral to the design, a new way which had never been seen before. And suddenly everybody started building stadiums with a tremendous number of skyboxes to take advantage of that. And now here we go again. We're looking at a new business model with the more recent stadiums that seems to focus on land development. Can you chart some of that? How closely are you watching these trends? You're absolutely right. I sh- uh, Auburn Hills is a great call. Uh, Bill, that, that was the, I think the first stadium or the first arena that had a lot of luxury boxes and at about the same time, the football stadium in Miami, which was also late eighties. And the thing was, yes, you had to have team owners realized that what a huge and steady source of revenue because corporations, uh, largely are the ones that buy and rent the boxes and, and not just for one game at a time, but they have multi-year leases usually. And so, so it absolutely became critical to the business model. And now we're seeing a trend. I, I think the Atlanta Braves Stadium, uh, where they're moving, uh, north of the city where there's real estate development that's owned by the team around the stadium. So I, I kind of look at this maybe as, as the Disneyland, Disney World, um, <laughs> but 30 or 40 years later, because Disneyland, of course, was built in Anaheim, and it was an amusement park, and then all sorts of hotels and everything in Anaheim grew up around it, uh, but they weren't owned by Disney. And when they went to Orlando 20 years later, they bought all the land and did all the real estate development themselves, and so they took advantage of that. And I think you're seeing that sort of development going on now with sports stadiums. We're talking with Joel Maxey, associate professor and the head of the Drexel University Sports Management Department, and uh, he serves also as the president of the International Association of Sports Economists. Joel, uh, one of the trends that I've been keeping an eye on is the gradual shortening of the shelf life for stadiums. Uh, Turner Field will be a good example. The new Texas Rangers ballpark that's going to replace a beautifully functional park that they already have considered a very very nice park we see a number of other situations that are similar to that is this a trend that is likely to continue and how short will the shelf life actually get for these beautiful new stadiums that's uh, a really good question. I, and, and I think if you were to, you know, go back 20 years or so when these stadiums, I mean, just about 20 years when the stadium in Arlington was built, you would never have thought uh, that in 2016 they would be calling for a replacement of it. And, of course, stadiums don't become physically obsolete. And we, we know that in Chicago where Wrigley Field's been there since for 100 years and, and, and in Boston. So they don't become physically obsolete. And, and the problem is that they become uh, and I'd, I'd put air quotes around this economically obsolete. The, um, and in some ways, I think, you know, it's kind of like, uh, well, I want a new car because, uh, the old car runs just fine, but I, I want, uh, uh, a GPS. I want whatever the latest technology is. And I think that that's what, 
in, in a way that people are saying with stadiums. And then on top of that, I would like new things too, especially if I could get someone else to pay for it. So an owner of a sports stadium might, <laughs> or a sports franchise, uh, whether it's in Texas or Atlanta, might say, hmm, that investment, if it's got to come out of my pocket or my, uh, that wouldn't be something that I would do. But if I can get the public to chip in uh, most of the money and uh, I'd like to have a new one, then sure, why not? You know, just recently the word came out on what the new L.A. stadium, Kroenke World, is going to ask for naming rights. Joel, it's off the scale. It is way, way up there. Is this going to be the trend now? Are we going to continue to see these naming rights revenues uh, escalate, and in this case, dramatically? You know, I think that naming rights probably were undervalued. That I mean, it, it's just to me. I don't get too uh, caught up in it. To me, it. to me, it's advertising. So, why do you want to put your name on a stadium? Well, that NFL stadium is on uh, going to be on television, national television, every week or close to every week. If it's an NFL stadium, uh, the announcers are going to say it over and over. So, it's advertising, and then I think, and, and they're signing. Very long deals now, so so naming rights tend to go for ten years, twenty years, or or pretty far in advance. So I guess the answer to your question is, I, I think that it's being realized that this is actually a pretty good value for advertising over a long period of time, and uh, corporations are willing. So you just said Mercedes Benz, uh, that that number hasn't been disclosed yet, but uh, I I think the old, uh, you know, a few million dollars per year, that seems like a lot of money to uh, uh, an individual person, but for a corporation and what they have in their advertising budgets, uh, I think that, yeah, we'll see those continue to go up. What are the issues going to be 10 years down the road that we're going to be looking at? I think that we'll see the pressure to continue to build more new stadiums. So we, we already talked about that, but I, I mean, even though we've got a whole new crop that was built starting 20 years ago, I wouldn't be surprised that it continues because there'll be new bells and whistles. I think technology, real estate development. So I, I expect the stadium issue and then the controversies that go along with that. Is it, is it, uh, is it worth it? Who should pay for it? The taxpayers? I, I think that those things will still be going full force. 10 years from now. Um, labor issue things, I I think it's interesting right now that in the 2000s, every work stoppage, so you'd have to go back to the baseball strike in 1994, 95, but mm-hmm. in, in the 2000s, starting with the NHL uh, in the late 90s and then the NBA in 90, every work stoppage has been a lockout. So the owners have initiated them all. So it was upstart unions in the 60s and 70s and going on strikes and then it's been more uh, uh aggressive owners locking players out since then and uh it will be interesting to see how much further they go so every time there's a lockout the players give back a little bit more and a little bit more so it, they were all making 60 percent of revenues or caps were around 60 percent of revenues uh in 10 years ago and then this latest round of lockouts they're, the players are down to half or a little less. So to me, it's interesting, like, how, how far will that go? Will there, be, will there be some sort of turnaround with that where where the unions get more aggressive again or get more leverage again? And I I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think uh, we've seen the owners uh, been able to push 
pushed more towards their way for quite a while. When when do we get to the point where it breaks back the other way? And that might be in 10 years. We'll see. Joel, it is a pleasure to visit with you and uh, a lot of fun to dig into these issues. It's fascinating. And uh, certainly we hope we can invite you back another week as we go along the path a little further and revisit some of this. But uh, we thank you very much for your time. A great visit. Thanks so much, Joel. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. A pleasure. Dr. Joel Maxey, Associate Professor at Drexel University. He is the head of Drexel's University Sports Management Department and president of the International Association of Sports Economists. Well, it is time to talk shop once again, and stepping to the plate, Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website, the site you can depend on for stadium information, the nation's preeminent source for that information, and be sure to check it out for yourself at stadiumsusa.com. Mark, we reported a couple of weeks back on a group led by some former NFL players who were pushing to build a new stadium in Oakland for the Raiders, remember. This story doesn't seem to be going away. Rather interesting. Now, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell is weighing in. What's the latest? Well, Roger Goodell has gotten more involved with the group led by Ronnie Lott. Word has it that Goodell is making calls on behalf of this predominantly African-American investment group. One of Goodell's calls went to Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, who has scheduled a time to meet with representatives of Lott's group sometime in the next week. The Raiders have been impressed by Lott's group and are willing to work with them if they can fill the $400 million canyon that exists between them and financing a new stadium. (laughs) The focus of Goodell's calls, though, and his reason for an active involvement is that the NFL is one of the few organizations that has no African-American team owners, and he would like to see that change sometime in the future. The Raiders are still in the process of romancing the Las Vegas opportunity as well, and there's a dedicated group of high-power individuals there pursuing NFL ownership uh, in that Las Vegas site. So something's going to happen with the Raiders sooner or later. Mark, speaking of Commissioner Goodell, he was in Buffalo this last week, and the topic of a new Bill Stadium definitely was talked about. And in this case, as we've covered, this would likely be a dome stadium. Did the commissioner send some subtle hints, <laughs> brother, to the <laughs> Buffalo community? I think that's a loaded question, Mark. <laughs> Well, I don't think they were very subtle. Dr. Goodell also was busy this week, and he's he's a busy guy uh, trying to push the Buffalo market for a possible new stadium. Goodell's comments include the statement that the new owners, Kim and Terry Pagula, are, quote, trying to see what it takes to make sure the bills remain here on a successful basis, unquote. (laughs) Uh, That quote implies the bills are not currently on a successful basis. The um, bills just completed a $130 million renovation to Ralph Wilson Stadium, and uh, that's probably not good enough to keep the commissioner from talking about 
what the Bills are going to have to do in the long term. He definitely wants a downtown Dome Stadium for the Buffalo Bills. Mark, changes continue in and around the ballpark at iconic Wrigley Field. A public meeting was held last week in Wrigleyville, and we know all about those through the years. We've seen plenty of those, brother. Uh, Residents had a chance to voice their thoughts on a patio project planned for just outside the ballpark. What fun. Tell us about this project and what the neighbors are saying about it. Oh, Bill, I was just about to ask you to go over there and have a couple of cold pops with me. uh, The Cubs are involved in another dispute with local residents concerning a proposed outdoor patio. Um, The project would be built outside the ballpark. The neighborhood surrounding Wrigley, for those that aren't in Chicago, is primarily residential. Neighbors for many years have been dealing with problems with parking, traffic, access, etc., etc. The liquor license the Cubs have applied for would not restrict them from opening that patio 365 days a year. Some residents feel only beer and wine should be served, and still a lot of other loose ends exist on this proposal, but the Cubs are going to have to fight the neighbors again, and I'm sure it's going to come down to a political wrestling match as usual. Mark, here's a ballpark promotion we haven't seen before. Next month, the Minnesota Twins are offering fans the opportunity to tag along with one of their favorite players as he goes through his pregame rituals. This is all happening using something called VR, virtual reality. Give us the details on this. Another step forward for fans through the use of the Google Cardboard branded goggles and a special virtual reality app. The promotion is pretty simple. Fans will be following the player for the Twins as he does everything. He arrives at the ballpark. He walks in the clubhouse and interacts with his teammates. He warms up in the batting cage. He hangs out in the dugout. And then finally, as he takes the field for the game. I don't know how they're going to do that. I've been in a clubhouse, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in there that really shouldn't be shown on virtual reality (laughs) or anywhere else for that matter. But uh, that's what they have in mind. But it is kind of a cool concept. Remember, virtual reality has this 360-degree viewing concept. So as you turn your head, you kind of, just like in real life, where you see a different scene as you turn your head. So it'd be probably pretty interesting to get a chance to see all the behind-the-scenes areas that go on up at Target Field and see that as the player moves around and does the things he has to do pregame. So mm-hmm. that's a, it's a pretty neat concept. They're going to be putting a, a version of this up online on YouTube once it's done. So we'll get a chance to kind of take a look at it and see. But it's one more way that uh, reality comes to life uh, through the use of New technology. Here's one you can file under sign of the times. Major League Baseball has stepped in after the New York Mets complained that the L.A. Dodgers were using lasers to position their outfielders at City Field. Mark, what is going on here, high tech? Well, the L.A. Dodgers were hoping to utilize today's technology to help position their outfielders during the games. Um, As you probably know, being a big baseball guy, teams use a visual graph known as a spray chart Mm -hmm. that keeps a visual record of where hitters tend to hit the ball. And then they position their defense accordingly. Everybody's seen the infield shifts that go on these days. That's based on those spray charts and where hitters tend to hit the ball. The Dodgers wanted to use the laser to more precisely position their outfielders based on that best location for where balls are hit. But MLB has ruled that the 
use of lasers during the actual game is illegal. They can use them pregame, but they can't use them during the game. So it's back to using the towel and say, back, back. <laughs> and, of course, they have to mark the field, don't they, as I understand it? they actually Well, that was to... part of the problem is they asked the Mets groundskeepers if they could put some kind of a marking in the field because they need a baseline for the lasers in order to position people. And the Mets uh, groundskeepers went to management and, uh, and said, hey, the Dodgers want to do this, and management called MLB, and that's how everybody found out the Dodgers wanted to do it. So, All right, Mark, each week we take a look back at some of the significant dates in stadium and baseball history. Mark, what do you have for this week? This week in 1963, the first ever Sunday night game in Major League Baseball is played. It took place at Houston's Colt Stadium after the Colt 45s petitioned the National League to lift the ban on Sunday night contests. The reason? Excessive heat. And boy, you've been in Houston. You know how hot and muggy it can get there. Oh, yes. In the first Sunday night game, the Colt 45s beat the San Francisco Giants. And I remember the Colt 45s because what did they exist for? Two years? Yeah, that sounds right. They yeah. existed and in the small ballpark. Before. And the little tiny ballpark. Mm -hmm. In 1989, Bill, the first ever Major League Baseball game to start outdoors and finish indoors. It happened at the Sky Dome in Toronto. After a few innings, the threat of rain forced stadium officials to close the roof in a game where the Blue Jays beat the <laughs> Milwaukee Brewers. And in this state, 1974, the Phillies' Mike Schmidt hits the longest single in baseball history. A ball ticketed as a sure home Home run hits the center field public address speaker at the Astrodome, and here's how it played on Astros Radio. Schmidt is a right-handed batter. Helms breaks over to hold Cash close to second base. They're giving Bo a big lead off first. There's a fly ball, and that's a deep one all the way to the center field, and Cedeno, well, what did it hit? What did it hit? It hit something. That ball was that high to hit that speaker? Evidently, that'll be a single. A sure three-run homer turned into a long single <laughs> with the base runners Dave Cash and Larry Boa stranded on the bases. So just a few items from this state in stadium history. Where else could that happen other than the Astrodome? You know that. And boy, isn't it great to hear the voice of Gene Elston. I knew him, knew him well. Wonderful, wonderful guy and a great, great broadcaster. Mark, as always, thanks for the visit. We will see you next week.